Welcome back. It's what happened. It's your favorite podcast. We're we're back. It's you been came, a minute. You came in so hot, but we're back. <laughs> it's, it's been a minute. We were on a hiatus for the holidays. And we're back now. I don't know if it's season two. We'll probably just keep it season one. Yeah, I don't think we're like we're not changing our theme or anything. And I feel like that's kind of a thing with seasons, right? Yeah. I don't know. So welcome back, everybody, to the What Happened Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ryan, and this is my uh, other host, Owen. Yep. I didn't think, it didn't seem like you were going to say my name. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I don't do that. Anyways, um, if you don't know what this is, if you're a new listener. This is a podcast. This is a podcast, and it's uh, called What Happened, because every week, Owen and I find some crazy historical event, and we ask, what happened? So yeah, there's a theme for this week. The theme is movie magic. Yeah, mine's definitely less movie than I expected, but I'll be honest with you. Mine's pretty movie. Yeah, mine's not. Mine kind of ties into a movie at the end, but. We'll get there. When I initially looked it up, it was like, oh, movies. And then the more I looked into it, it really wasn't. Mine's Wild West. Oh, well, why'd I make mine movie? I don't know. You did Samurai, so I did Wild West originally, and then you changed it. Because I thought it was about a movie. It's not. <laughs> All right, anyways. So there's no theme for this. <laughs> We're coming back strong. Anyways, uh, make sure you stick around till the end, because we have a very, very, very special surprise. We got a good announcement. We have a great announcement. Okay, let's get into it. Owen, what's your favorite movie? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> One of my favorite movies. Well, how about this? What's your favorite war movie? We Were Soldiers is pretty good, but it has Mel Gibson in it, and now that's a little... <laughs> okay, I've never seen it. But anyways, I watched Apocalypse Now last night. Good Vietnam movie. Great Vietnam movie. And then I started Googling, okay? Did you just randomly watch this, or was this part of your research? Like, did you watch it and then be like, oh... Honestly... I started researching it, and then I put it on, and then I was like, ah, I'll research it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough. So anyways, Apocalypse Now, Owen, is a gritty war thriller as much as it is a psychological journey through the hell that was Vietnam in the 1970s. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. It very much is. The 1970s. <laughs> what? <laughs> it very much is. <laughs> <laughs> the 1979 uh, ta- classic tells the tale of Captain Benjamin Willard on his journey upriver through Vietnam to find or into Cambodia in search of the highly decorated Colonel Kurtz, who has now gone rogue. The film premiered to both critical and audience acclaim and grossed $150 million. Wait, really? Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty good movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. However... The production process of this film is widely considered to be the most grueling, painful, and terrible experience in all filmmaking history. Actor Dennis Hopper, who plays a war journalist, says uh, said this after filming. I felt like I had gone through the war. Because it was... <laughs> I, 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 sorry, I just thought there might have been more to that. That's why I didn't say anything. It was pretty tough, I guess, on everybody. Um... In <laughs> in interviews, uh, Martin Sheen called the filmmaking project uh, process chaos, 
and apparently called his friends back home to tell them that he thought he was going to die there. Were they filming on location? They were filming in the Philippines. Yeah, yeah same thing. Still tropical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what went wrong on the set of the mo- one of the most prolific war movies ever made? Let me tell you. We'll start with the budget, okay? Remember how I said... Uh, 150 mil. It made 150 million? Well, the initial budget was... The initial plan was to... Uh, for Francis Ford Coppola to produce a movie for $2 million and have it directed by um, George Lucas. Okay, only $2 million. Only $2 million. That didn't really pan out. George Lucas backed out. So uh, the project was in limbo until 1976 when Coppola revived it. Uh, the new plan was to produce a movie, a movie for $12 million and have Coppola direct it as well. And... Uh, hopefully like they were hopeful to release it in 1977 okay okay this didn't happen the film came out uh two years after they they wanted it to (laughs) (laughs) what happened okay all right (laughs) uh sorry that was a weird weird delivery Uh, uh, continue. So yeah, it was delayed by two full years. <laughs> and I just want to say this: after this point, yep, just everything goes wrong. Okay. Okay. So after just after all the stuff I've said, okay, everything goes wrong. So the film was initially supposed to star Steve McQueen, <clears throat> but he demanded three million dollars and like a Mustang or something to be in the movie. Um, no, he just didn't want to film there for that long. It was supposed to be like a six week sh- six week shoot, he didn't and he want to was be like, in the "Philippines for six weeks." Yeah, he was like, "I'm not doing it." He didn't want like an expenses paid or all expenses paid vacation. To, like, well, when a you hear about area. it, you're, it's probably a good thing that Stephen McQueen wasn't in this movie. Um, so they he wouldn't do it because he wanted three million dollars, and he didn't want to be there for that long. So they replaced him with Harvey Keitel. But Keitel backed out mid shoot because of a contract dispute, so they hired Martin Sheen instead. Which required four days of reshoots to get all of um, Captain Willard's scenes reshot. And then um, two months into filming, a uh, massive typhoon oh, hit the Philippines. Yep. Which uh, not only like was it unsafe for them to work there, it also destroyed like half of their sets. I'll talk about an inconvenience. Yeah. So it's pretty rough. Um, yeah. So they had to rebuild all of their sets. And then on the topic of sets, Owen, let's talk about props, okay? Now, obviously, this movie has a lot of dead bodies in it mm-hmm. because, you know... War movie. It's a war movie. Yeah. So, one day, uh, Coppola, the director, Francis Ford Coppola, I've said his name already. I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> he arrived on set to a terrible smell. Turns out... The crew had uh, paid a local man Uh-oh. to go grave robbing and bring real dead bodies to the set. Is that allowed? In the Philippines, Philippi- apparently Jeez. it is. Um, and no one wanted to like tell the director? Um, I think they still shot with them for a couple scenes. Yikes. So there's some scenes with just real dead people. So does like, a family member get some royalty for that? Highly doubtful. Highly doubt it. Yep. Yeah. Jeez, man. Also, apparently, um, every night while they were filming in the jungle, tigers would prowl around the camp. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think the dead bodies really helped I'm the sure tiger they situation. I'm sure they attracted. Yep. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not a tiger expert, but yeah. So this also also this part, it's not really a filming nightmare, but it's just kind <clears> of interesting. Um it's you've probably heard it. It's pretty famous, but in one of the opening scenes, Captain Willard is awaiting his orders in a hotel room. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's Martin Sheen. Yep. And he just got super drunk. Yeah, he was method like, acting like to the to the fullest on that one. Yeah, he's just like film me. Yeah, and, and then he like punched a mirror. <laughs> Yeah, so then he, while feigning insanity, he uh, punched a mirror, actually cut his hand, and then proceeded to smear blood all over his yeah, face. Yeah, and like roll on the, the bed. Yeah. And just How do, mad like, would you be? Weird you karate. Like, oh, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yo, that happened. You know who else did that? In uh, Django. What's his name? Oh, Leonardo uh, DiCaprio. Yeah, he like he smashed the table and like cut yeah. his hand open. That's method acting right there. It's method act. Is that well? I mean, is, is it method acting to accidentally cut your hand open and roll with it, or is it method acting to like purposely get yourself like shit faced? Well, in Django, he he smashed it by accident, but then he purposely he rubbed it. his blood all over that lady's face. Yikes! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs a pay raise. So the movie also had an issue with the Philippines. Specifically, the Filipino military. Okay. So. So minus the grave robbing, the typhoons, the tigers. Do you remember the um the air cavalry scenes? Yes. You know the ones where he's like, "We play Wagner." Yeah. Scares yeah, yeah. the hell out of them. Yeah. Great scenes. So many of these air cavalry scenes were play or were uh, filmed with helicopters owned and operated by the Filipino military. Okay. But there was an issue. Uh, because there was a civil war going on in the Philippines at what? the time. Okay, so whose genius idea was it to like you know do it in the Philippines? It looks a lot like yeah, but Vietnam. Th- there's there's like yeah, I don't know. There's not a and I have a feeling that if you filmed the Vietnam War movie in, in Vietnam, Vietnam you would probably get killed. Well, that's just why you go to La- Laos. How do you say it? Laos, Laos, or Cambodia. You know. Yeah, I don't know, buddy. I don't work in Hollywood. It just doesn't seem like a good idea to go to a place with an active civil war to film a war movie. <laughs> so on multiple occasions, so like, right, they were rent, they were using these helicopters by, like given to them by the Filipino military. What, do they have to borrow them back every now and then? Well, on some occasions, <laughs> the actors would uh, get set up, like Coppola would be about to yell actions, and the helicopter pilots would just leave <laughs> to go, like, fight in an actual war. Jeez. <laughs> so, you know, it brings realism, you know? Yeah. So that would delay their shooting a lot. Um, now, a movie like this, Owen, has a lot of downtime, whether it be waiting for the Filipino man to give you a dead body to film with, the helicopter's leaving. Waiting for the tiger to leave. <laughs> the tiger to leave, the typhoon, whatever it is. Um, a lot of times you have to like coordinate these big action set pieces, like a bombing run in a tree line or like 15 helicopters flying in formation. So like stuff can take a while. And because of this... Um, the actors and crew had a lot of like free time. Yep. And uh, they would just get wasted. Apparently, the set was lousy with drugs and alcohol. I mean, what was this, the 70s? Yeah. Eh. So, <laughs> on one shoot day, do you remember um, Lance Johnson? <clears throat> no. He was the surfer guy. They they like went to the uh, when they're it's been a while but when they were doing the sure. air cavalry thing they like land on the beach and the the major guy is like get those surfboards out Lance look at the surfers or whatever yeah right okay so right. he's played by a guy named Sam Bottoms 
<laughs> Unfortunate last name. Great name. Um, and one day, on one shoot day, he spent the entire day high on LSD, meth, and weed. I mean, he portrayed a surfer. Yeah. I mean, there's also a scene where, I don't know if you remember it, but they go to like the bridge, which is like the last outpost yep. before you get into like Cambodia or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, his character's just staring at it. And he's just like, I used my last tab of acid today or something. <laughs> So, yeah, people did drugs there all the time. Jesus. Um, there are, like, reports of, like, hotel room parties with the entire cast and crew. I love it. Like, during the fil- like, during the um, typhoon, when they're all, like, laid up. What else are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, also, Dennis Hooper, who played the... I don't know if you remember him. He played the war correspondent. Yep. Who, like, was yep. staying with uh, Colonel Kurtz. Mm-hmm. So, um, he was initially cast as a, a Captain Willard's predecessor. Okay. Who was sent to kill Colonel Kurtz before Willard, but was captured and he was like found at Willard's camp or at Kurtz's camp. Uh, Coppola ended up not liking this character and asked uh, Hopper how he could fix him. And Hopper replied, an ounce of cocaine. Oh, God. And apparently after this, the crew ended up uh, supplying Hopper with cocaine for the entirety of the shoot. Oh, jeez. What? okay (laughs) where do you even get cocaine in the philippines i don't know i feel like it's pretty it's probably not clean Uh, is is it ever i feel like you can get some pretty pure coca from those colombians you know that's a good point i don't know not big into cocaine so i couldn't tell you (laughs) well you have to say that (laughs) um the film set was also plagued with injuries People got like weird jungle diseases, like I'm sure yeah. trench foot. There were like insects everywhere. A couple cases of malaria. Yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> one day after filming, uh, Martin Sheen was found crawling down a road. Uh, okay. And he was having a heart attack, which he attributes to the stress of the filming. You don't think it had to do with like the cocaine? I don't know if Sheen was doing cocaine. How old was he then? He wasn't that old. Thirty. Yeah. 30 higher 30s like 37 or something 36 it's not great yeah he had a heart attack (laughs) yikes and apparently when coppola found out about sheen having a heart attack he had a seizure what the hell (laughs) yep that jungle fever man (laughs) yeah so let's talk about marlon brando for a minute right yep brando's character colonel kurtz is supposed to be like this really fit dude. Mm-hmm. They said they say in the film that like Colonel Kurtz passed para jumper school when he was like thirty eight. Okay, so he's supposed to be like really in good shape. Brando showed up to uh, the film weighing over three hundred pounds. Jesus! <laughs> oh my god! And I don't know like who cast him. Like, yep. I guess they just hadn't looked at him. They just wanted Marlon Brando. Yeah. So there's a lot of questions to what happened with this movie. Have you ever seen the ending? I mean, I have. Yeah. Do you know how Brando is like always in a shadow? Is that why? It's because he's so fat and they needed a way to hide how fat he is. Jesus. Um, Also, Brando's contract was for $3 million. Okay. Which was the same as Steve McQueen's contract, but I guess they were willing to give $3 million to Marlon Brando, but not not Steve Steve McQueen. Um, yeah, so his contract was for $3 million, and he wasn't supposed to work weekends or stay past 5.30. Jeez. I, 
I gotta get myself into acting, man. So for the first four days of Brando's filming, he never showed up to set. And then he would call over Francis Ford Coppola and just like basically waste his time until 530. That's a smart man right there. So he'd be, like, he'd be like, hey, did you see the Dodgers game? And Coppola would be like, yeah, it's pretty good or whatever. And they would just end up sitting there till 530. And he's like, well, that's a wrap. Because <laughs> he just didn't want to act. I guess like he showed up to the set the first day and was like, "Am I when am I getting paid?" So it sounded like he literally just wanted to waste his time and just get a. He like just a, wanted a paycheck. Yeah, exactly. Um, also, Brando refused to learn any of his lines. Really? Yeah. So they had to stop production for a couple days so that Coppola could be like, "No, this is what your character is like," and he's like, "Nah, whatever." Oh my god. <laughs> so. Uh, on the day that he actually decided to show up to the film set, um, he showed up, uh, with a bald head. Nice. Didn't really discuss it with anyone. He was just like, <laughs> I'm bald now. My character's bald. And, um, you know, the monologue in the end. Yeah. It's like eight minutes long. Mm-hmm. Coppola had a script and he was like, all right, Marlon, here's your script. And he's like, nah, not, not learning it. I'm doing one take. <clears throat> I hope you get it. And that entire thing is improvised. Gee, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. So, um, by the end of filming, Coppola had lost... There goes your phone on the ground. You want to get that? I'll wait. Okay. (laughs) So, by the end of filming, Coppola had lost over 100 pounds and had threatened to kill himself multiple times. (laughs) Yikes. He did not like his experience. The movie also had lasting effects on Martin Sheen. Okay. Uh, he minus got, the like scar on his hand. Minus the scar, he got home. He uh, started drinking heavily, divorced his wife, and uh, got in a fight with a police officer, and went to jail. Um. When was Charlie Sheen born? No idea. Probably in the seventies. I feel like. Probably. I'd drink if I had Charlie Sheen as a kid. I don't know. Platoon's a pretty good movie, man. It's true. What was his other Emilio Estevez, right? Wasn't his brother, his like half brother? Yeah, he never happened in, to him. He died in Mission Impossible One. I know that. He That's was all in I know Mission Impossible. Him. He's in like the first five minutes. He like gets the cr- guy from Mighty Ducks, right? Yeah, <laughs> he was. <laughs> He gets crushed by an elevator, and oh. then that's it. Oh wow! All right, deep deep dive right there. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. So the movie eventually finished. Uh, they had an initial shoot. They had an initial shoot schedule of six weeks. Okay. Which turned into sixty-eight weeks. Oh my the god! End. And it, that initial budget of twelve million dollars yep. turned into thirty-one million dollars. Okay, wait, wait, no, no, just hit me out real quick. Yep. So you're Marlon Brando, and you're like, you got offered three million dollars to go film a movie for six weeks. You get three million for six weeks, and this idiot helped extend it that long. It wasn't just Brando. I know, but like he could have made like, dude, that's not bad. Three million six weeks. Yeah. I make like a K in like five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Jeez, man. Um, so the budget turned into $31 million and Coppola himself was putting almost all of his money into this movie. Oh my God. So that's pretty much where it all came from. I mean, at least it came back. Yeah. Um, when the movie premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. Con. When the movie premiered at the Cannes <laughs> Film Festival, <laughs> Coppola himself said this. We were in the jungle. There was too many of us. We had too much access to money, too much equipment. And uh, little by little, we went insane. Mm. And I, th- I 
I think this other quote is even better. He says, um, my film isn't about Vietnam. My film is Vietnam. I kind of like that because they all struggled. They all struggled. And also the movie like is just insane. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Yeah. It's also a very good movie though. Great movie. Which is, I did, I mean, I knew they struggled, but I didn't know they struggled, you know? They got some struggle in them, you know? That they did. So that's the story of how Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse now was made. Great movie, though. Like, Great fantastic movie. movie. I love it. All right. Dude, sorry, real quick. The scene, so Lawrence Fishburne's in it, right? He plays Mr. Clean. He's uh, he's the kid on the boat. Okay. You know when he, like, puts on the that song. Was him. <laughs> and he's, listen, I can't get no satisfaction by the Rolling yeah. Stones. Yeah. Dude, the scene, so he gets mail, right? And it's a tape from his mom. And uh, he's listening to this tape from his mom. Yep. And she's like, oh, I love you, son. I can't wait till you get home. And then he gets shot. And then it's playing over them being like, Mr. Clean's dad. Dude, I cried. It was so sad. You cried a lot of movies, though. You cried at Ratatouille. That is <laughs> an amazing movie, okay? That's all I'm saying. All right. So, like I said, when I initially found my story, I thought it tied a little more into movies. It does. It does. Okay. Just not. It's not nearly. It's not about a movie like yours. Um, so mine is about a man named Elmer McCurdy. So this is more of a wild Wait, Elmer what? McCurdy. Okay. M-C-C-U-R-D-Y McCurdy. Oh, like... Um, like Jason McCurdy. <laughs> like iCarly's friend. She's a McCurdy, right? Oh, yeah. The blonde chick? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you know that? Because <laughs> I love iCarly, dude. Okay. Um, so anyways, the interesting part of the story is really the second half of what I'm going to be talking about. I just felt like I shouldn't be talking about... So the set. The interesting, like, the wacky part is what happened to him when and after he died. Okay. But I felt like I should actually talk about the man himself before I just talked about, like, his corpse for 20 minutes. Okay. So we're going to just do a little synopsis, synopsis on himself. And I'll dive into, like, the actual wacky part. So you just got to hold on. So it's going to be end. boring for a minute is what you're saying. I don't know if it's too boring because he was still a Wild West outlaw, but he was just god-awful at doing it. Okay. <laughs> but, like, that's still pretty interesting, but, like, the wackiest stuff's what happened to him after. You've intrigued me, Owen. Yeah. All right. So, Elmer McCurdy was born January 1st. You just spilled water all over yourself. It's all wet. I don't have a towel. <laughs> no, you just got to sit in it now. Well, you told me he's wet. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the mic. <laughs> all right. I guess we're a brief we'll be, intermission. We're fine. Okay. We're fine. All right. Take your sip and I'll continue. We're good. All right. Born January 1st. New Year baby right there. 1880. Are you a New Year baby if you're born on the 31st too? Of January? Of December. Oh. Technically, no. Okay. Cool. Okay. Just checking. Uh, so January 1st, 1880 in Washington, Maine. Um, you spilled more did water. It again. So uh, he ended up dying October seventh, nineteen eleven. But I'll kind of fill in the gaps between his birth and death. Um, so he was born a bastard son to a seventeen-year-old Sadie McCurdy. His father is unknown, but it's believed to be Sadie's first cousin. Sounds like a real main thing to yeah, do. Yeah, you know. Um, so Elmer was then adopted by his uncle George and his wife Helen, and was raised to believe that they were his parents. Okay. Um, George would die in 1890, so 10 years after his birth, after McCurdy's birth, 
uh, from tuberculosis. Um, Sadie and Helen, who was George's wife, would then move to Bangor, Maine with uh, Elmer. I love Bangor. Great city. It is actually There's nothing nice, to yeah. do there. Real 50s no. vibe. Portland's a little more. I love Portland. Brick. Yeah. Brick everywhere. I ate clams there once. Yeah, it really is brick everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really. Dude, that brick in the sunset. Great city. Yeah. Um, so they moved to Bangor, Maine. And when Elmer became a teenager, Sadie, his mom, told him that she was, in fact, his mother. And that his biological father was unknown. So this kid, when he was like 14, his entire world just unraveled in front of him. His real parents weren't his real parents. His, like, cousin is actually his mom, and he doesn't know who his dad is. Uh, I I feel like there's still worse situations. Like, you still have two people that care about you. That's true, but what happens when you're a kid? You know, you grow up. It's very sensitive yeah, years, Yeah, spring that right? on him when he's like 30, you know, yeah. not when he's so, like 14. This naturally had a side effect on Mr. Elmer, uh, who was, after this, was then known to have a bad temper, was very resentful toward his own mother, was unruly and rebellious, and developed a heavy drinking habit. Sounds like Maine. At like 14, I think. Oh. He would carry this drinking habit to his death. Yeah, I mean, I feel like most people back then drank heavily. What else are you going to do? Yeah. Like, Watch literally... a candle? Yeah, like, what? what swim? Swim. <laughs> uh... <laughs> All right, so McCurdy would grow up to become a plumber and live with his grandfather after having a falling out with his mother when his mom was like, hey, I'm your real mom. Um, so in 1898, with an economic collapse in America, very well known, obviously. I didn't know it. Which one is that? 1898? I don't know. Something happened. Oh, Black Tuesday. There it is. Definitely. No, that's the Great Depression. Yep. Yes, it is. Yeah, when that stock. Anyways. <laughs> okay. So, uh, 1898, he would lose his job, and he would just basically be a bum. Two years later, his mother would die of a ruptured ulcer, and a month later, his caretaker and the person he was living with, his grandfather, would then succumb to Bright's disease, or what is now known today as kidney failure. Gotcha. Yikes. Not a great way so to So his go. dad was probably, a, or his grandfather was also probably a heavy drinker. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, so due to the, the deaths in his family, he left Maine wandering around New England trying to find a new life. Um, for a while, he would just take up odd jobs as like a plumber or a uh, or a miner in the area. as like a, like a coal miner. Gotcha. Not a child. <laughs> Correct. He wasn't in the circus yet. Really? Spoiler. Um... Anyway, so he just took up a bunch of odd jobs throughout New England, trying to find his way, but he could never hold down a job because he was just a stone-cold alcoholic. Um, so he then randomly, just randomly, don't know how, just found his way into Kansas in 1905, as many do. It's pretty f- far from New England. Yeah, don't know how he got there, couldn't find it, but my, my man's in Kansas now. <laughs> right. um, so, and I, we know he went to Kansas in 1905 because he was arrested for public intoxication. Sounds like also a Kansas thing to do. Correct. So, with his alcoholic background and his now new criminal record, what do you do, Ryan? You uh, buy a gun and uh, hold up a liquor store. You would think, but no, he en- enlisted in the army because oh, they let okay. criminals and alcoholics back in the day join the army. I mean, they let alcoholics in now. I don't. They, I think they just dropped the criminal thing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Um, so now it's 1907, and he was trained as a heavy machine gunner and learned to use nitroglycerin as an explosive. That's, That's important. It's pretty baller. Pretty baller. He was very lucky, though, because uh, he was honorably, honorably discharged in 1910, so he dodged a literal <laughs> bullet. <laughs> a real big bullet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> good on him for getting out. Um, so... I know what you're thinking. He dies a year later. 
right? I told you he dies in 1911. He just got out of the military in 1910. So where's this cool Wild West story? I was curious. Yeah. Like I said, I think I said this earlier. He was pretty bad at being a Wild West outlaw. So it only lasted a year. (laughs) (laughs) What'd he do? Uh, So, all right. So on November 19th, St. Joseph, Kansas. Uh, McCurdy and his friend were arrested for possession of burglary paraphernalia. They were carrying chisels, hacksaws, funnels for nitroglycerin, and gunpowder, as well as money sacks. Now, naturally, they told the St. Joseph Gazette um, that him and his friend um, had these tools because they were trying to build and patent a new machine gun for the military. How are you going to build a machine gun with, like, a, a wood chisel? Or like a stone chisel. Also, why do you have like like nitroglycerin on you if you're like, I'm just building a gun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in January 1911, a jury found McCurdy not guilty. Okay. So he was let off on all charges. So after his release from county jail, McCurdy's short-lived career as a bank and train robber began. McCurdy tried to use his, quote, skills with nitroglycerin. I say that heavily because you'll find out that he didn't really know what the hell he was doing. Um, he tried to use this, his skills with nitroglycerin in all, in all of his robberies. The problem was he was inept with nitroglycerin and he was just drunk every time he did anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it just did not go well for him. So his first major heist, uh, Lenapa, Oklahoma. Not sure if I'm saying that right. L-E-N-A-P-A-H, Lenapa. Not sure. So it's Oklahoma, March 1911. Uh, he and three other men decided to rob the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train after McCurdy heard that one of the cars contained a safe with $4,000 in silver coins. That's a big score back then. That's a big score. They were able to successfully stop the train and locate the safe. Sounds like a Red Dead Redemption 2 mission. Did they not get it open, though? No, they did. And you know how he got it open? Nitroglycerin? Nitro goddamn glycerin. Can I guess? Can I guess what happened? Yes. Did he destroy the entirety of the contents within the safe? <laughs> so he destroyed most of it, yes. <laughs> and this is a theme. He does this exact thing again. <laughs> uh, just um, a little too much on that one. We'll get yeah. him next time. So, um, so the gang was able to get away with $400, $450 in silver coins after blowing up the safe. But the problem was... All the coins were melted together. Uh, so he just got a lump of silver. <laughs> so there was 4000 in total, and all he could get out was a lump of silver worth $450. Imagine the taking that to a bank. Yeah, trying to explain that. Uh, well, I left him in the dryer. <laughs> um, so that was his first heist. Um, so it's September 1911 now, and McCurdy and two other men robbed the Citizens Bank in Chautauqua, Kansas. I didn't know Citizens Bank was around that Yeah, long. I didn't either. It's kind of cool, actually. My auto loan is through Citizens Bank. Get a good interest rate? Pretty good. Not bad. Above or below six? <laughs> below? Okay, good. Did they go up to six? I don't know. <laughs> I thought the highest was like 2.3. Better, I don't know. All right, whatever. <laughs> so, we're, so, continuing. So, Citizens Bank, Chattacacqua, Kansas. I don't know how to say it. It's very clearly like like a Native American name. I don't. I don't know. So after spending two hours breaking through the bank with a hammer, so they're trying to get to the vault in the back of the bank, right? This guy just brought a hammer. McCurdy got impatient and decided to place place nitroglycerin on the outer bank's vault. Or the bank's outer... The big door? Yeah, the outer... Yeah, thank you. I don't know how I just got that messed up. But anyway, so the blast blew the vault door through the bank, destroying the entire interior of the bank but did not damage the safe inside the vault. How? 
much <laughs> nitroglycerin does this guy use? Also, how do you just like come upon nitroglycerin? Can you make it somehow? I, I maybe I, I assume. I don't know. I know napalm is pretty easy to make. I don't like that you know that. I'll be honest. You just like boil gasoline or something. I don't know. That sounds so dangerous. All right, kids. Step one on how to make napalm. <laughs> Get a pot. Boil gasoline. <laughs> 450 degrees. Um, so Blast blew the vault through the entire... Um, bank ruined the entire interior of the bank, but he still couldn't get the vault door open. Wait, wait. So, uh, let, picture like help me out with this. So, bank the vault is at the end of the bank, presumably. Correct. Yeah. It blew the door through the front of the bank. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just destroyed the bank. I think it just destroyed the entire interior of the bank. Okay. Um. So naturally, with the you know, vault blowing open, the lookout man who was like trying to hold everyone like hostage and like looking for cops just bolted because like. Yeah, I wouldn't stick around, especially when the plan was, yeah, we're going to go in with a hammer. With a hammer. And you yeah. hear an explosion, I'm yeah. out of there. Yeah, I'd run. So with his, uh, with the guy running away and him having no security, essentially, McCurdy just ended up stealing uh, roughly $150 worth of coins from a tray that was outside the vault. Oh, so so like, they spent like two and a half hours chipping away at this vault. McCurdy got impatient, blew it up, and then they just left from like... Also, how are you going to get through the vault with just a hammer? I don't know, man. Like I said, he was drunk every time he did one of these things. (laughs) So, that was his second heist. Now, for his third and final heist. McCurdy's final robbery took place on October 4th, 1911, near Okesa, Oklahoma. Okesa? Okesa? I don't know. McCurdy and two accomplices planned to rob a Katy train after hearing that it contained $400,000 in cash. That was intended as a royalty payment to the Osage, Osage, Osage Nation. I don't know how to say it. I should have looked it up sooner. But it was basically a payment from the U.S. government being like, hey, sorry, we were dicks to you guys. <laughs> yeah, um, sounds right. So he's like, all right, there's a train carrying $400,000 in cash. We're going to do the same thing we did before, stop the train, hijack it, right? They mistakenly stopped a passenger's train, a passenger train instead. I don't know how you missed that. Uh, how do you... Did they blow it up? So, like, are you on the wrong rail? Like, <laughs> I don't... Like, yeah, there are no turns. It's I, just I, it's I, one track. I tried to look more into how they messed it up, and I just couldn't figure it out. But regardless, they accidentally stopped a passenger train. They were able to steal $46 in cash. Um, 46 That's a big payday a right A couple there. cases of whiskey, an automatic revolver, a coat... <laughs> And a train conductor's watch. <laughs> Dude, you know they're going through the the aisles with a gun, and one of them's just like, that's a nice coat. <laughs> um, so a newspaper, a local newspaper, called it, quote, one of the smallest train robberies in history. <laughs> <laughs> so McCurdy was disappointed by his haul and returned to Rivard's, Rivard's Ranch, which is where he's been staying in between his heists, on October 6th. Uh, that night, he began drinking the whiskey that he stole and ended up spending the night crashed in a barn. Okay. Now, he didn't know this, but he was, um, uh, they found out, like, they, as the authorities found out who these people were that robbed the train. So they ended up putting $2,000, like, a uh, dead or alive cash reward on McCurdy's head. Okay. Uh, so three sheriffs were able to track McCurdy down to this, uh, the exact barn that he was at. Um... So, he awoke around 7 a.m. to find the barn surrounded by three sheriffs, Bob and Stinger Fenton and Dick Wallace. That's a, that's a trio right there. Yep. 
So a shootout ensued because he woke up and was like, oh, crap. And then just started shooting at the sheriffs. Yeah. So reported he missed every sheriff. Yeah. Um, probably pretty bad hangover. Probably not aiming straight. Yeah. And every time you shoot, your head gets worse. <laughs> um, so a shootout ensued for about two hours. Um, and the sheriffs just stopped shooting eventually because they're like, oh, he's not shooting back at us. So once they went into the building, they found him lying prone with a gunshot to his chest, a single gunshot to his chest. So they don't know if he did it to himself, if it was inflicted by one of the sheriffs. They don't know. Yeah. They, all they know is that he died from a single gunshot. So not entirely a wacky story at the moment, besides being just really bad at your, like, your day job. It was pretty silly. So post-mortem McCurdy is where it gets interesting. That was the name of my band in high school. Post-mortem McCurdy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so McCurdy's body was subsequently taken to The Undertaker in... Pahuska, Oklahoma, where it went unclaimed. So what they did back in the Wild West is a body would go to the undertaker, the mortician, whatever you want to call them at the time. They would, depending if the family was there, they would like just do what they normally do, embalm you, give you to the family. But if no one claimed you at the time, they would just leave you outside on the street in an open casket for someone to walk by and claim you. For them to be like, oh, it's my brother. <laughs> so, I should have heard about this sooner. This was a normal thing to just leave your your, your patrons out, I guess, <laughs> until someone claimed them to pay you. Um, so he was embalmed and he went unclaimed. So Joseph L. Johnson, the owner and the undertaker, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based uh, preservative, which was typically used for embalming in that era. Now it was it was like stopped use in the forties, I think. Gotcha. Um. And just left him outside until someone could find out who his next of can was. <laughs> Let me guess, no one... He literally has, like, no next of can. Yeah, no one claimed him. Um, so this is 1911. Gotta remi- remember, in October of 19... October 7th, 1911, I believe. Okay. Um, so, the embalmer shaved his face, dressed the body in a nice suit, and stored him in the back of the funeral home. Because just after a while, no one was interested, so he just put him back inside. Rather than leaving the body out in the sun of Oklahoma. Um, so McCurdy laid, laid unclaimed, but Johnson refused to bury or release the body until he was paid for his services. So this man just kept a dead corpse in the back of his room. Who, who does he expect to pay him? I don't know, man. Um, so Johnson, not making any money because no one claimed him, was like, I don't know what to do with this man anymore. So he started to charge people. Oh, wait, sorry. I just skipped an entire page. Um... So he char- started to charge people uh, a nickel to be able to visit the, quote, bandit who wouldn't give up. So he gave this guy a name, put him outside his shop, and was like, hey, kid, give me a nickel and you can look at his body. <laughs> Gotta make money somehow. And, like, it's 1911, so, like, what else are you going to do? And Nintendo wasn't out yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you might as well just go look at a dead body. Yeah, um, can we go see the bank robber? Yeah, right? So what he did is he placed the corpse in uh, street clothes, placed a rifle in his hands, and stood it up in the corner of the funeral home. And like I said, for a nickel, you could go visit the bandit who never gave up. I mean, you could also just go in there, like, on the, under the guise of, like, oh, I'm shopping for a coffin and just look at it. Also, yes. Yeah. And get away and keep your nickel. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the bandit, a.k.a. McCurdy. Uh, became a popular attraction at the funeral home and drew the attention of carnival promoters. Johnson received numerous offers to sell McCurdy's corpse, but always refused. Now, um, on October 6, 1916, five years later, okay, 
A man called himself Aver contacted Joseph Johnson, claiming to be Elmer McCurdy's long-lost brother from California. Well, you said five or eight years later? Five years. Okay, so hold on. Let's do some math. It's five years. How many people do you think saw that? Probably a lot of people. Day. He said it was a pretty popular attraction. I'd probably give like five a day. So five, five a day. Yeah. So that's 1,825 people. Okay. For... A year. Yep. It's five years. So it's 9,125 people. Okay. okay. Times five, because yep. it's a nickel apiece. Yep. It's 45,625 cents. So divide that by 100. Dude made like 450 bucks. <laughs> that's pretty good. I feel like that's pretty that's good. not for, bad. It definitely covered his services, at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... This guy named Aver claimed to be McCurdy's long-lost brother from California. Uh, Aver had already contacted the Osage County, Oklahoma sheriff and local attorneys to get permission to take the body back to what he said was San Francisco, where he lived, where the brother lived for a proper burial. Gotcha. Um, The following day, Aver arrived at the Johnson Funeral Home with another man calling himself Wayne, who also claimed to be McCurdy's brother. Fun fact, McCurdy didn't have any siblings. Yeah, I don't... Didn't think he did. So, so Johnson released the body uh, to the men who then put him on a train to San Francisco. Didn't go to San Francisco. Uh, so obviously there was a guy saying he was going to San Francisco, right? They ended up shipping the body to... Um, uh, sorry, I just lost my place. To Arkansas City, Kansas. Okay. Uh, the men who claimed to be McCurdy's long-lost brothers were, in fact, James and Charles Patterson. James Patterson was the owner of Great Patterson's Carnival Shows, which was a traveling carnival. Okay. So after learning from his brother Charles about the popular embalmed bandit, um, the two concocted a scheme to take possession of the body in order to feature it in their carnival. McCurdy's corpse would be a feature in Patterson's traveling carnival as, quote, the outlaw who would never be captured alive until 1922. Six more years. That's a pretty good run. When Patterson sold his operation to Louis Sonny. Wait, hold on. Because, like, a carnival, right? You sit in the stands, and then, like, you see an elephant, like, stand on a ball or whatever. Yeah, and then they just show, they're like, they this is an outlaw. they just wheel in, like, a stiff corpse? Yeah, and it was like, this is the outlaw that never, that would never be captured alive. It's not exciting at all. And the fact was, like, this guy wasn't a good outlaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, now, what was I going to say? So, Louis Sonny. Ended up buying the um, the carnival in 1922. So Sonny used McCordy's corpse in his traveling, quote, Museum of Crime show, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws such as Bill Doolin and Jesse James. So all these wax sculptures, and then there's, like, an actual dead corpse. So, like, okay. what, which one's the real one, kids? Uh, you decide. <laughs> um, kind of weird that Very weird. you have a wax sculpture thing, and you're like, let's just put a dead corpse in there too like can you imagine no one will to figure like, it out what's that place that's in like there's one in boston there's one in new york the wax museum i think it's just called a wax museum yeah i forget it's like madam something but can you imagine going to that and then you're like you you're like walk out and there's a little sign being like oh the like so and so was it an actual corpse and you're like what the fuck <laughs> <I> <laughs> by the a, way this one's real <laughs> like dude i took a picture with him <laughs> um so in 1928 the corpse was part of the official sideshow that accompanied the Trans-American Foot Race. Uh, I couldn't find more into it. I assume it's just another carnival kind of thing. Yeah. So, in 1933, it was acquired by 
for a time by director Dwayne Esper to promote his exploitation, exploitation film Narcotic with an exclamation point. Uh, it's a 1933 movie. I don't know. It's probably not great. I don't imagine it's good. It's probably along the lines of like Reefer Madness or something. Sure. You ever seen Reefer Madness? I have not. It's a weird like 1940s or 1950s like propaganda film. Oh, good. And it's like <laughs> it's like a a dude takes like a hit of a joint and then goes on like a killing spree. Yeah, oh, yeah, as one does. And they're yeah. like, "Don't smoke the devil's lettuce." Oh, God. <laughs> Um, so, uh, to promote his movie, Dwayne Epser, the, um, director, placed the corpse in the lobby of theaters as a, quote, dead dope fiend, whom Ep- Esper claimed had killed himself while surrounded by police after he robbed a drugstore to support his bad habits. By the time Esper acquired McCurdy's body, it, it had become mummified, the skin had become hard and shriveled, um, causing the body to shrink and look really gross. Yep. So, Esper claimed that the skin deterioration was caused by the dope fiend's drug ad- addiction well it's a good way to keep kids off drugs yeah is to just have a dead corpse in the lobby of your movie <laughs> you're gonna look like him one day um that's not the end of elmer mccurdy's journey okay um so after louis sawney died in 1949 the corpse was placed in storage in a los angeles warehouse okay fast forward to 1964 it's a good amount of time later this man died in 1911 what's he looking like in 1964 um i didn't see any pictures i only saw the picture of him like in the coffin right after he got embalmed gotcha and he looks pretty lifelike (laughs) um i haven't seen a picture i couldn't find one of him like now okay but he's already looking pretty yucky in like 1920 yeah so now it's 1964 yeah so 1964 sonny's son Dan lent the corpse to filmmaker David F. Friedman. It eventually made a brief appearance in Friedman's 1967 film, She Freak. As what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a dead corpse? I mean, if you go in, like, I, I, IBDM, Internet Movie Database, it doesn't, like, give... <laughs> it doesn't give Mr. Elmer McCurdy... <laughs> he's not in the credits? What are you talking about? <laughs> so I don't know what he's... I don't know what he's in. Like, so... It, I don't think you have to be credited if you're dead, like a speaking role. Yeah, that's actually true too, and that he's dead, so you can't. And also, yeah, you generally (laughs) have to be alive. So, after the film, one year later, goes back to the um, goes back to the storage facility, right? So it's 1968. Now, one year after the film, Dan Sonny sold the body along with other wax figures for ten thousand dollars to Spoonie Singh. That's a real name, real man's name, right there. So, who is that? The owner of the Hollywood Wax Museum. Okay. So, Singh had bought the figures for two Canadian men who exhibited them at a show at Mount Rushmore. This man was at a national monument. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, while being exhibited there, the corpse was unfortunately outside all the time. Oh, uh, did he get all dusty? So, he didn't just get dusty, but there was like, it's apparently, re- I've never been to Mount Rushmore, but it's apparently really windy there. Okay. So, he lost a tip of his ear, and uh, like, a couple fingers and toes were just blown in the wind. Jeez. <laughs> of this, like, what is this, like, 50 years now? Yep. Um... So McCurdy's having a good time, dude. He's he went to L.A. He's going to <laughs> he's going to national monuments. He was in a movie. <laughs> this man's living his best dude, just life. Put this man in the ground, <laughs> <laughs> Um So 
Um, the men eventually returned the corpse back to Singh, who decided it looked, quote, too gruesome to be on display at Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. Um, so Singh then sold it to Ed Leersch, part owner of the Pike, an amusement zone in Long Beach, California. Okay. By 1976, 1976, McCurdy's corpse was hanging in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse. <laughs> with <laughs> Dying. This guy died in 1911. He's in a funhouse. In 1976. <laughs> like, dude, the, like you've been in funhouses, right? Like a haunted house. Like the like there's like funhouses, which is like basically the same thing as haunted houses, but there's just like like the floor moves and stuff, but like for fun, not to scare you. I've been in like the mirror thing. Or yeah, the, it's, no, it's, it's like, like those glass things. Yeah. and you just walk into yeah. Stuff <laughs> <outside>. <laughs> yeah, but this guy's in a funhouse, so there's just a dead corpse. Jeez. Like a sixty-year-old corpse. Jeez. <laughs> um, so on December 8th, 1976, the production crew of the television show The Six Million Dollar Man were filming scenes at this carnival for the episode Carnival of Spies. Okay. So during the shoot, a prop man moved what he thought was a wax mannequin that was hanging from the gallows. While he moved it, the, his arm ripped off, and it was very obvious to the poor production assistant guy that there was... <laughs> Like the human hum, like a humorous head with tendons and muscles hanging out. Uh, yuck. Um, so police were called, <laughs> and the mummified corpse was taken to Los Angeles coroner's office on December 9th, nineteen seventy six. Did they uh, leave him outside in an open coffin? <laughs> I mean, that's that's hey, <laughs> that's the theme of this. Um, so Dr. Joseph Choi conducted an autopsy and determined that the body was that of a human male who had died of a gunshot wound to the chest. The body was completely petrified, covered in wax, and had been covered in layers of phosphorus paint. The man was painted. He painted him? <laughs> yep. Jeez. Um, it weighed approximately 50 pounds, or 23 kilos, and was 63 inches tall, or 160 centimeters. I like how you converted it to metric for a foreign audience. Exactly. Um, shout out Finland. <laughs> so some hair was still visible on the sides and back of his head while his ears, big toes, and fingers were missing. They did my man Elmer dirty, man. Yeah, dude. The examination also revealed incisions from his original autopsy and embalming. Tests conducted on the tissue showed the presence of arsenic, which was a component of embalming until the late 1920s or 30s, give or take. So that helped the coroner place his time of death prior to the 1920s yeah so this guy was probably like jesus christ <laughs> um so tests also revealed tuberculosis in the lungs which mccurdy had developed while working as a miner and he also had bunions and scars that were documented that he was documented to have gotcha um all leading to them identifying mccurdy as this man who was hung up in a freaking fun house who tracked all this stuff down uh, I assume the L.A. County coroner, probably police. Okay. Uh, Was any of this illegal to just I, I don't around know. a corpse? It seems very illegal. It seems it, like some like, of this should be punished. At least morally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> at the very least. Yeah. Like, I get in 1911 putting them outside because that's just what they did so no, you could claim sense. the dead body. But then the fact that... It was sold to a carnival. Yeah. And, and then, then was somehow at Mount Rushmore. And then used in a, in a movie... And in a fun house. I can't believe he was hanging house. in a corner. He was hanging on a gallows in a fun house. That seems messed up. That's pretty messed up. Can you imagine all the kids that then learned? <laughs> like, 
oh hey that thing that I was, that scared me as a kid that's a real life human corpse yeah ah. that was a, like a 70 year old corpse um <clears throat> so doo -doo -doo. so while the bullet that caused the fatal wound was presumably removed during the original autopsy the bullet jacket was found on his body interesting um it was determined to be a gas check, which were first used in 1905 un until 1940, which also led them to, like, figure out that his time of death. A gas check is just the type of bullet. Gotcha. Um, so, further clues to the man's identity were found when the mandible was removed for dental analysis. Inside the mouth was a 1924 penny and ticket stubs to the I-40 West Pike Sideshow and Louis Sawney's Museum of Crime. Wait, so not only <laughs> have they... <laughs> painted, painted him <laughs> like hung him up by a gallows put him in a movie someone's jamming pennies and ticket stubs in his in mouth. his mouth uh, i wonder Elmer. if they told like an intern that like hey just put it in the like the dummy's mouth and the guy was like this feels real and they're like no shut up <laughs> like elmer wasn't a great guy but also probably didn't deserve this i don't think he deserved this poor like horrible treatment yep. post-mortem um <clears throat> So, investigators contacted Dan Sonny, who confirmed that the body was Elmer McCurdy. Forensic anthropologist Dr. Clyde Snow was then called in to help make a positive identification. Dr. Snow took radio radiographs of the skull and placed them over the photo of McCurdy, taken at the time of his death, in a process called superimposition. Okay. Um, Snow was able to determine that the skull was that of Elmer McCurdy. By December 11th, 1976, the story of McCurdy's journey had been featured in newspapers and on the television shows nationwide. Several funeral homes called the coroner's office offering to bury McCurdy free of charge, but officials decided to wait to see if any living relatives would come forward and claim the body. But so, we know that he didn't have any relatives. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah. So Fred Olds, uh, he was a representative um, of the Indian Territory Posse of Oklahoma Westerners, eventually convinced Dr. Thomas Naguchi, then the chief medical examiner of the Los Angeles County, um, to allow him to bury the body in Oklahoma. After further, further testing to ensure proper identification, Olds was allowed to take custody of Mr. Elmer McCurdy. April 22, 1977, a funeral procession was conducted to transport McCurdy to the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma. Uh, a graveside service attended by approximately 300 people was conducted, after which McCurdy was buried next to another outlaw, Bill Doolin, who he was featured next oh, to yeah. in the Wax Museum. That's really creepy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, to ensure that McCurdy's body would not be stolen, two feet of concrete was poured on top of his casket. Did they ever sew his arm back on? Yeah, I, 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 I assume it was just placed in the coffin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, and that is the life and death of elmer mccurdy <laughs> Jeez, that's rough <laughs> i literally found this because i saw an article that like it was like real dead body used in movie shoot so i looked up the guy and then i was like wow there's a lot more to this <laughs> <laughs> and it just kept getting worse for poor elmer yeah, that's a rabbit hole right there yeah man what a just you're not good you're like you're not even a good outlaw yeah i, I like how they how back then like they would just like very clearly lie to you just to get you to pay a nickel <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then he was also used it to promote a movie about like not doing drugs and they were like look how gross he looks it's because yeah. he did drugs even yeah. though he was like 40 years dead <laughs> that's, that's kind of wild man. yeah so that's uh that's my wild story for you today 
we are hope you we we, <laughs> we are hope you <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of what happened but remember how i said there was a special surprise i know you've been waiting for it okay owen and i were launching an inaugural episode of a movie podcast we figured we'd talk about movies enough in this. Honestly, we don't have a name yet, so I will edit it into the end. So just don't just keep listening if you really want to know. Um, but yeah, so we're going to have a movie podcast. It's going to be Owen and I watching some pretty garbage movies and making fun of them. The first three episodes <laughs> are going to be about the 1990s film trilogy, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The live action. The live action from my childhood. Yeah, I think... At least what I want to do with this podcast, especially, is watch a lot of, like, even, like, f- movies and TV shows from my childhood. Yeah. From, obviously, a lot of other people's childhoods. Just to realize how terrible they really were. And to just ruin the nostalgia for myself. So, if you have some uh, movie suggestions, hit us up on Instagram or Twitter. Um, the Instagram is uh, what happened underscore pod. Uh, the Twitter's official underscore WHPC. Give us some uh, movie suggestions and we will uh, review them. And uh, we'll get back to you guys with further content on it, like I said. Or, like, excuse me, like Ryan said, he'll just awkwardly edit the name in here. Yep. We've had this planned for a while, but we just kind of procrastinate with a lot of things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, yeah. We hope you enjoyed. See you next time. See you next time, guys. I love you. Oh, I was supposed to sing it, right? Oh, you are, yeah. What happened? Hey, gang. Ryan here. Um, we decided on the name. So it's uh, going to be called Bean Boys Theater. So stay tuned for that. Uh, it should be coming out sometime this week. So hope you enjoy.